0: Um, if you have a copy of God's Word, and I really hope you do, please join me in First Corinthians chapter nine as we consider our study of this powerful and very, very timely book of God's Word. The title of our message today is "Running to Win." Hebrew or First Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And we're going to read from verses 18 through the end of the, I'm sorry, 19 through the end of the chapter. He 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 19 through 27. Remember as we read this, if if you haven't been here the last few weeks, there, there's a context here. Chapters 8 through 11, Paul is dealing with the issue of uh, eating meat that had been offered to idols. And the Corinthians were really wrestling with that. And Paul is in the middle of talking about how Important it is for us as believers, as Christ followers, to be willing to set aside the things that we think that we're owed, setting aside our rights for the sake of the gospel. And so that's where we find Paul sharing these words with us. Chapter 9, beginning in verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win more. that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified." Sometimes, up here, I get a chance to talk about some of my heroes of the Christian faith. And one of uh, many of them who has impacted my life is a man by the name of Hudson Taylor. Many of you are familiar with Hudson Taylor. He was a missionary to China in the 1800s and was a pioneer in a lot of ways. And uh, there's so much to say about his life and his ministry and his heartbeat to reach uh, the lost in China with the gospel but one of the things that Hudson Taylor discovered early on in his ministry there is that, that people weren't paying attention to what he had to say. And uh, he discovered that some of the villagers were calling him uh, a black devil. And it was because of the dark European clothing that he was wearing. He was, he was from England, and he would wear long, uh, the traditional long overcoats that were common in Europe in those times, and they were black. And it was very uncommon to see those in China. And so the villagers grew suspicious of him because of how different he looked. And so he did something that at the time was quite radical. He began to dress a lot like the local Chinese. He put on their local clothing. And one of the the most distinctive things he did is that he grew out his hair into that uh, very uh, distinctive, it was called a a queue that that, uh, many Chinese men wore at the time, where they would shave the front of their head and grew out the, the back into a long ponytail. He was criticized by many Europeans and and mocked and picked on by some of his co-workers. But something something as simple as that gave him a greater audience with the people to whom God had called him to minister. He broke down some of those unnecessary barriers to sharing the gospel and opened doors and created bridges to be able to build relationships and share Christ. I think that's similar to what Paul is getting at in this passage. He wanted to become, as he says, all things to all people so that he might by any means save some. Paul looked at this Christian life as a race to to, uh, take part in, a race to win. And so as we think about running to win, we're going to look this morning at Paul's strategy to do, to do just that. Paul, in these verses, as we'll see here, had a strategy to win. Paul was not a uh, someone who was bar- borrowing from uh, 21st century business and marketing techniques. Uh, But he did have a strategy. He wasn't just out there aimlessly wandering around. He says later on in this passage here that we read in verse 26, so I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air. He had purpose. He had a goal. He had a strategy. His goal, you may have heard it several times. He uses the word seven times in this passage, is to win. Did you hear that over and over again? Paul wanted to win. He wanted not to win something for himself. He didn't want to win some kind of an award or competition in that regard. His goal was to win souls. That was his heartbeat. If you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard that language. I want to be a soul winner. That's, a, that's, that's Christian terminology that we've borrowed right from this very passage right here. Paul had a desire to see souls, to see people come to know Jesus Christ As their Lord and Savior. That was his goal. This word win means to acquire by investment or effort. He wanted to win over hearts for the cause of Christ. You know, there's a lot of things that we can invest our time and energy in, Um, there's a lot of different things that we can try to win in this life. But I want to submit to you that there's no greater thing to win than a, a soul for Jesus Christ. Proverbs 11.30 says, whoever captures souls is wise. But how did he go about that? What was his strategy? He was willing to become all things to all people. Next Sunday, the Super Bowl will be played. Well, it feels like in the last year, nothing's ever certain. The Super Bowl is scheduled to be played uh, next Sunday. I said Saturday. Next Sunday night. And uh, I, I don't uh, have to know a whole lot about the ins and outs of football to know that each team is in the process of developing a strategy to win that game. They're not just going to go out and have at it. They're not just going to wing it. They're, they're, uh, the, the Chiefs and the Bucks are working hard at trying to understand what they think the other team will be doing and to try to develop a strategy to beat that team. Well, Paul had a strategy to, to share the gospel, to win souls for Christ, And that was to become all things to all people. You see, Paul lived out the foolishness of the cross right in front of the very eyes of those to whom he went. He didn't minister from a position of superiority. He did not lord over the Corinthians or anyone his rights as an apostle. He says right off the bat in this passage we read here that he took the position of a servant, a slave. He ministered not from above but from below. Verse 19 says, I'm free from all, but I've made myself a servant to all. You see, when we hear the word freedom, so often we want to run with it, right? And we want to say, that means I can do whatever I want. That means I'm autonomous here. Paul says, I'm using my freedom to make myself a slave. Incredible. It's contradictory. It doesn't seem to line up. When you read the letters of Paul, he's a very... Uh, very fond of that word, slave. It's a it's the word Greek word doulos. It's a bond servant, someone who willingly puts themselves in submission to another. Paul says, "I've got freedom, and I'm trading it in for slavery." <laughs> now, Romans six tells us that we trade our slavery to sin to be able to be slaves of Christ. Paul says, "Paul's not saying he's going back to slavery to sin. No, 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 no. He's he's taking that freedom and he's becoming a, a, a slave." for the sake of the gospel, being willing to set aside his rights to use his time, his money, dress the way that he wants to, uh, use, use his life for his own goals and purposes. He's, I'm I'm submitting myself to Jesus Christ. And you know what he's doing? He's following in the exact same footsteps of our Savior. Mark 10.45 uh, says this, For even the Son of Man... Came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul's doing exactly what Jesus did. He's setting aside his rights so that he can win souls. It's important, though, as we read these verses, to understand what he's not doing, he's not being disingenuous he's not being a compromising chameleon that vacillates and is different in every situation or circumstance. We've been around people like that. Maybe they talk differently, they they have different morals, you know, probably we've even we've even seen it with someone who comes to church and you're like you come to church you're like you see him for the first time, you're like are you serious because I've I actually work in the same building as you and like I know how you talk and I know how you live. And I'm really super surprised to see you here. So, like, we, we've, we've all known that maybe have lived that and been tempted with that to be two different people morally in this world. That, that's not what Paul's saying. Um, I, I've never been goose hunting, but uh, um, I've, I've watched it done before. I've watched guys out. And I, I know that one of the most important things when you're out goose hunting is the use of decoys. Being able to have decoys enough laid out that those geese that are circling overhead feel safe to come in and land. Um, Paul was not trying to play the role of a decoy to lure unbelievers in under some false pretenses. He was not being deceptive here. Let's hear what he is saying. He was practically becoming all things to all people. He was trying to break down unnecessary barriers that stood between him and sharing the gospel with others who were without Christ. And so he lists off a number of people or groups of people that he was willing to set aside his rights for and become like them. He says in verse 20, To the Jew I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. So he's talking first of all here about his countrymen, those that were from a strict Jewish background. Who followed the law religiously and ritualistically? In what ways did he do this? Well, possibly by abiding by certain ceremonies or certain rituals that wouldn't have compromised the gospel of grace. Maybe under certain circumstances, he chose to refrain from eating certain foods or went to uh, observe certain uh, special days, uh, Jewish feast days. But there's another interesting and powerful way that he did this with the Jewish people. Um, I can't remember if I put it up there on the screen. I think I did. Yeah, in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four, Paul is listing off a number of things that he suffered for the sake of the gospel. And in that list of things, he mentions this, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Now, the, that was a customary punishment. For something uh, severe in the Jewish world. They weren't allowed to uh, give you more than 40 lashes according to the law, and so they would, just to be safe, they subtracted one. And, and so uh, Paul had, uh, on five different occasions, and he doesn't say why here, most likely it was for perceived blasphemy, for preaching that Jesus was God himself, five different times he was, he was whipped, 39 times. On five different occasions, five separate occasions, he received these lashings. Now, if you remember in the book of Acts, Acts chapter sixteen, and we won't turn there, but it's at the end of the end of the book, end of the chapter, uh, verses thirty-seven through forty. Uh, it reveals that as a Roman citizen, Paul Paul even though he was Jewish, he he had Roman citizenship. We don't really know how he may have purchased it or been granted it through some other means. So he was. Jewish by heritage and birth, and a Roman citizen—a very unique situation. Under Roman law, you could not punish a Roman citizen without trial in a Roman court. And so, the Jews were allowed by the Romans to punish their own for these—these these, uh, for breaking the the Torah and and their. Um, uh, other rules and rituals and regulations. The Romans allowed them to do that with one another, but they were never allowed to punish for a, a, a an infraction against Rome, nor were they allowed to punish for um, uh, punish a Roman citizen. And yet, in, in in Acts chapter sixteen, Paul actually, in that situation, uh, claimed his Roman citizenship and got out of a beating. Why, do we ask? Did he submit to it on five other occasions when he could have gotten out every single time because of his Roman citizenship? Does the question make sense? Paul could have gotten out of these lashings by just pulling out his ID card. Why in the world would you submit to a beating? I mean, I got spanked a lot as a kid, and I promise you I did whatever I could to get out of it. Now, it never occurred to me to stop doing the things that got me into it in the first place, but once the punishment was, once the sentence was received, I did whatever kind of fast talking I could to try to get out of it, and I don't remember it ever working. Why did Paul go through this? I think David Garland captures it well. He says, Paul bowed to synagogue discipline to maintain his Jewish connections. Jews were given special privileges to settle their own disputes in their own courts. If one wanted to stay a member of the Jewish community, hear that, one had to submit to its discipline. If you were not willing to be disciplined by the community, you were put out of the community. You were considered a tax collector, a a Gentile, and you were out. In order to stay a part of the Jewish community, you had to submit to its discipline, I believe Paul accepted these penalties to keep open the option of preaching the gospel message in the synagogue and among his people. For Paul to submit to this punishment five times testifies not only to his mettle, but also to his extraordinary sense of obligation to his own people. Think about that. Paul's heart bled so profusely for his people that he was willing to go through punishments that he had every legal right to get out of so that he could become all things to all people. It was so important to him to have a voice in that community, to be able to go to synagogues where there were synagogues in these cities and and at least have one chance to share. He said, I've become all things to all people so that at least maybe I, I could save some. If you read Romans, I didn't write it down, I think it's Romans 9 or 10, I think it's 9. Paul says, I have such a heartbeat for my countrymen, if there's a chance I could save them, I I would be willing to be cut off from Christ. He wanted to reach his people so badly. He was willing to do whatever it took. The others that Paul mentions, he mentions those outside the law. And verse 21, here he's speaking of Gentiles, to those who are outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Now, he's, um, he's not talking about sin. Hey, they lived wicked, sinful, drunken, uh, debauched lives. So, hey, I, you know. Paul did not use the phrase, hey, when in Rome, uh, he was not willing to compromise the gospel message or his own integrity, or the word of God. Rather, he was willing to spend time in places where he knew he would be maligned, just like Jesus did by eating with prostitutes and tax collectors. Paul was willing to set aside in these situations uh, whatever it was that could have been a distraction to the gospel. He says uh, that he was still under the law of Christ, verse 21, even though he was out, outside of the Mosaic law, and there's a lot that we could say in there. There's a, it's really is an interesting debate. What's the difference between the Mosaic law and Paul's phrase, the law of Christ? I, I just leave it simply at this, that I think Paul was, uh, was under the new covenant, and he recognized that he was not bound by all the ceremonies and the rituals that were tied in with the Mosaic law. He says, no, no I'm, I'm still submitting to... The word of God to the regulations and commands that God has for me. But I'm I'm free from all the trappings, all the things that were a part of that Mosaic law. And now I'm free in Christ, not to do whatever I want, but free to be a servant, free to be obedient to His moral law by the power of the Spirit. He ate with Gentiles, lived among Gentiles. In fact, I think you could make a case for that one time in Acts chapter 16 where Paul uh, uh, appealed to his Roman citizenship. And then the, the, later on, he appeals to Caesar so that he can get a trial in Rome. I think a big part of his strategy was to be able along the way to be in unique places with Gentiles that he would not normally have been. On this ship, where remember he was shipwrecked, and then, and then he went on to Rome. And we find out from Philippians that it seems like even uh, there were some in Caesar's court who were coming to Christ Through Paul's witness and ministry, Paul was willing to do whatever it took. He even says, to the weak I became as weak, verse 22. Remember, we heard that phrase, that term back in chapter 8, referring to those who had sensitive consciences about the meat that had been offered to idols. Paul literally adjusted every aspect of his life so he could better draw souls to Jesus. Wow. Every aspect of his life. No stone unturned. His whole life was committed to drawing souls to his Lord and Savior. I want to tell you, if, if you're not already making the connection, that if you take these steps in your life, if you're willing to do whatever it takes and become all things to all people, I promise you, somewhere along the line, you will be misunderstood. When Hudson Taylor ditched European clothing for local Chinese garb and grew out his hair in a weird ponytail, uh, he was mocked by other missionaries, other people who were in China trying to do the same thing he was and share the gospel, when we choose to become all things to all people, when we're willing to set aside our stuff, our rights, to reach the lost, we will be misunderstood on both sides, by believers and unbelievers alike. It's so important, though, that as we pray and think about how God calls us to do that, it never—it means that we. It never ever means that we water down or change the changeless gospel message. The message of the cross never changes. The method in proclaiming the cross can and does. The way that uh, Martin Luther proclaimed the gospel in uh, 16th century Germany is going to look a whole lot like a, a faith or a whole whole different a whole world of different than a faithful follower of Christ in 21st century North America. In Kenya, or in a Muslim country, or in uh, Indonesia, or in South America, it's going to look different based on where you are and, and when you're living. But there's never, ever a time that we change the gospel message. There will be difficult questions that come up things that cause us to scratch their head. There's been debates, for example, in the last uh, 10, 15 years about Christians who are ministering in Muslim countries when they do a new Bible translation in a language where, where the people are predominantly coming from a Muslim background. What word do I use for God when I translate the Bible? Do I use the word Allah? That is the word that means God in this language. Well, one of the concerns is, obviously, that that term has a ton of baggage with it. It's a different God. So do I invent a new word for God because they've never heard of the God of the Bible? You see, there becomes difficult questions that one has to wrestle with, and it's not always clear-cut as to what it looks like for me to be faithful to the Word of God, uncompromising in my biblical convictions, yet willing to adapt my lifestyle For the sake of the gospel. The messenger must be flexible. The message is not. Paul never compromised the gospel message. Ever. But he also didn't let something that was not a big deal to God. Get in the way of taking the gospel to any and everyone that God brought in his path. He did whatever he could to consciously identify with those to whom he preached. The good news. This is what Jesus did. Romans 8.3 tells us that God sent his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh so that we may be saved. Jesus was the first great example of this. He came in the form of of the likeness of sinful flesh. God could have still continued to reveal himself through prophets. God could have continued to speak to his people from on high and from burning bushes. But he chose to come in the form of sinful flesh you and i as ambassadors in this world ambassadors of the gospel of jesus christ are called to incarnate the gospel to live it out where we are in a way that connects deeply with the people to whom we minister This is going to look different for each of us with the people that we work with and so paul as we see here the the first thing that he did was he he had a strategy to win But then he also had the discipline to finish. The discipline to finish. Paul knew that living this lifestyle required faithful endurance. There were temptations to quit all along the way. When you're living this kind of a radical lifestyle, being willing to set aside your rights... It's going to get exhausting. It's going to get discouraging. There are going to be times when you're hurt deeply by believers and unbelievers alike. And there's a temptation to quit. And Paul knew that. And I think that's why he makes this segue into this running metaphor. And he says, don't you know, verse 24, that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Some of you remember a few years ago, uh, my uh, my running coach Michael Long and uh, and I uh, ran a half marathon together. I'd never run a half marathon together. I don't think before that I'd ever run more than about five miles at one time, and and uh, so he helped he helped train me and get me ready ready for it. And it was down in Grand Rapids, and there were a ton of people a part of this thing. I had no idea that there were so many idiots in this world, um, and. uh, so I, I get in there, and I, I, he, my goals were very simple. Um, uh, the first goal, the highest goal I had was to not die. I just, I just wanted to not kill myself in the process. In fact, before I ran the marathon, I, or the half marathon, I hadn't actually run that 13, whatever it is, 13 plus miles. I, I, I still had yet to do it. I trained and ran 10 miles a couple of times, but I hadn't, I'd never ran the 13 miles in my life. So I just said, Lord, please don't let me die out here. This is not the way I want to go. Uh, My second goal was to not make a fool of myself. I could just see the headline, like, I take off, and, like, uh, uh, runner, um, you know, didn't make it more than, like, eight yards. And he tripped and fell and broke his leg, you know, on his first stride. Uh, And I just was like, okay, I I just don't want to make a fool of myself. There's a lot of cameras here and a lot of people here watching. I just don't want to be, like, an absolute, um, uh, you know, laughing stock here. And then I I was trying to finish under about 11-mile pace or 11-minute pace per mile. I didn't have any illusion of winning this race. In fact, the, the winner of the full marathon was only about 15 minutes behind my finishing time of the half marathon. Um, but, you know, can you imagine going to the Olympics as an athlete, whatever competition it is, running, speed skating, uh, some track and field event, and going in there, with like, like you can, can you imagine an Olympic athlete being interviewed, and they're like, eh, I'm just glad to be here, enjoying the sights and sounds, and, I don't care how I finish, really, you know, I'm just going to kind of go out and, you know, I, I might uh, jog the first half and just, I'm just going to kind of take it all in and enjoy that. you imagine? Nobody gets to that level of competition with a, a laissez-faire mentality. You talk to any of the athletes competing, and even the ones who, like, nobody gives a world of chance. You know how they, they rank, like, you know, Michael Phelps is expected to win another gold in this this uh, swimming event here. Uh, There are some that aren't even given a chance by the commentators and by the experts, but you talk to that person and they are going to win that event. They are there for one reason and one reason only to win. That's their heartbeat, that's their goal, that's what they've spent their whole life training for. They're there to win. And that's what Paul calls us, that's how he calls us to live the Christian life. He says, I want you to run to win. I don't want you to to quit on the last lap. I don't want you to let off the gas even a little bit. We're here to win. What's he winning? I think in the context here, he's still talking about souls. A lifestyle lived that longs to win others to Christ. He says, I don't run aimlessly. He had purpose. He had a heartbeat, a goal, to see people come to know his Savior. He knew what it was like to be on a path running away from God, tormenting and persecuting people in the name of God, and yet running from God with every fiber of his being, and to be radically changed by Jesus Christ. He knew what that was like, and he longed for others to come from that life of darkness into the life of light. You see, you read a passage like this, though, and one of the dangers is that we can feel the need to put everything on our shoulders to win someone for Christ. Scripture posits redemption, salvation as a both-and. God is sovereignly at work, and yet we are called to faithfully proclaim the gospel, to pray for lost souls how the two come together exactly i can't explain to you living that that walking that fine line of like this is in god's hands god is in charge of the fruit he's in charge of the harvest he's got to draw that sinners heart to himself but at the same time i'm doing all that i can by every means to become all things to all people so that i might save some paul lived this tension When we fall over too heavily to one side or the other, you fall too heavily over to the sovereignty of God's side, it's easy to get apathetic and just say, hey, God will take care of that. In fact, William Carey heard that when he wanted to go to India as a missionary. He shared it with his his denomination. He sat before a board and, and said, this is my heartbeat. And one of the board members, a pastor of all things, stood up and said, Mr. Carey, you need to sit down. If God wants to save it, those heathen across the seas, he'll do it without your help or mine. That's an unbiblical view of the sovereignty of God. But you can fall into the ditch the other side where it's all on me, and I'm lying awake at night like like there's, there's nothing wrong with lying awake at night pleading for souls and being burdened with souls. But if you're doing it from the standpoint of like, if, if I don't say something, or what if I said it wrong, or like if, if it's all on me, and that person dies without receiving Christ, even though you shared shared with them, and you beat yourself up and kick yourself because you must not have done it right, otherwise, they would have gotten saved. Listen, that's not where God wants us to be either. Scripture teaches both of these things, and we need to live in that tension. We need to. Go gangbusters during the day and then sleep restfully at night in the sovereignty of God. Believing that he's in control. There's a tension here and Paul lived in that. And notice, finally, that there was a, in verse 27, a danger for Paul. He says, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This a sobering ending to this passage. That word disqualified means uh, just what you think it does, a runner who has is, who is not abided by the rules and is taken out of an event. It's someone who's proven to be false, or the, the word could be uh, referred to something that's counterfeit, a fake, a fraud, a phony. Paul did not want to end his life and discover that, that he had not really truly been a, a minister of Christ. You see again here we have a danger in our in our culture where sometimes um, we've made it to where becoming a christian is just simply we've presented in a way that it's simply a transaction you're just hey you want to sign your name to this petition you want to sign up for this team you want you want to sign up for team jesus all right you're good but when you read the new testament you listen to the words of jesus christ i mean think about how, how did he how did he gather his disciples Come and what? Follow me. It was a lifestyle that he was inviting them to, a lifestyle of taking up your cross and following him. We're not saved by good works, but our lifestyle will demonstrate whether we're truly changed on the inside, whether we truly believe the things that we claim to believe. And Paul says, I don't want to get to the end and find out that I've fallen by the wayside. I've stopped living for Christ. I've stopped running the race. I've shared with you before, it breaks what, probably one of the most heartbreaking things for a pastor to watch is to watch people who started off strong in their life. Maybe were raising their kids in the church, maybe were involved in some way, and you saw them sharing their faith or, or, or using their gifts. And then as life went on, they began to get less and less interested in the things of God. Maybe their, their retirement had afforded them a lifestyle where they could live luxuriously or live for themselves and do what they wanted to do. And they just sort of just stopped running. Most Christians don't just say, like, like, walk away from God and become an atheist. It happens, but one of the far greater dangers is you just stop running the race and you start walking and then pretty soon you sit in the stands Then pretty soon you leave the stadium altogether Paul didn't want to be that person. How about you? As we think about this big picture of setting aside our rights, setting aside what I want to do, living the lifestyle that I would pick on my own, and setting it aside for the sake of the gospel, are you willing to become all things to all people? Last week, we sort of framed our application negatively. We asked if there were beliefs or behaviors which were creating roadblocks to the gospel. This week, let's frame it differently. Rather than focusing upon tearing down roadblocks, let's ask the question, what bridges am I building to make the gospel known? Am I willing to do whatever it takes so that my neighbor might know Jesus Christ? What does it look like for me to radically alter, to readjust, Or reorient my life and priorities so that I might win more souls to God who loves them with an everlasting love. I don't think that we can stir up this kind of intensity on our own. It has to come from the Spirit of God. There's more that we could say here, but I I think this kind of intensity in, in the Apostle Paul comes from a belief in divine judgment. He understood there were consequences for those who did not believe the gospel. And and that got to him. He understood that rejecting the gospel means an eternity of separation from God in hell. And that, I believe, terrified the Apostle Paul. Paul knew that as he proclaimed the gospel, he was talking about life and death, eternal life and death matters. And he was passionate. I love what the missionary C.T. Studd said. Some want to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. He had the heart to see those who didn't know Christ be rescued from perishing. Paul had a love for souls. 1 John 4:19 says, We love because He loved, He first loved us. Do you love people? Do you love people enough to be willing to? shake up the relationship a little bit, run the risk of being rejected in order to share with them the life-changing message of Jesus Christ? Do we love people enough to do that? It also comes from a heart that's captured by Christ's love. In 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul says, Christ's love controls or compels us, knowing that he was accepted through Jesus Christ and loved infinitely by the one who created him. He was free to love others. This morning, as we think about running the race to win, let's be people who are captured by the love of Christ and share that love with others, that love enough that is willing to give up anything, do whatever it takes aside from compromising the gospel so that others might know our Savior. Let's run to win and let's pray. Heavenly Father, May these truths really grip our hearts. God, there are so many things in this life that the enemy and that our own hearts in this world bring that distract us from living this way. God, would you help us to see clearly what it means to run to win To be willing to become all things to all people. To have blinders on when it comes to the stuff of this world and sinful temptations. Anything that would distract us from winning the race of soul winning. God, would you speak to us specifically and show us the stuff that we need to set aside and the bridges that we need to build and who we need to build them with for the cause of the gospel. God, may we not walk away from this encounter with your word without listening to the Spirit of God. May we not walk away from the scriptures today without you specifically putting a face and a method in our mind and hearts to, take, to this, take the gospel to this soul who desperately needs Jesus. Father, I just also want to pray that if there's someone here who feels ill-equipped to do this, who longs to but doesn't know how, that they would be willing to, to start that conversation with, with, with someone here at church, one of our pastors, so that they can think through how they go about this. Father, we know that this is your will for your people, proclaiming the gospel and living it out. Oh, that you would equip us to do so. Now, the Father who loved you before the foundation of the world, the Son who set you free and made you his slave, And the Counselor who stands by you forever, give you ears to hear him, hearts that crave him, lives that reflect him. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. God bless you this week.